One of those mornings. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Etienne. This is Gabe. Gabe's going to read for us very soon. But I just wanted to introduce Gabe's reading before you do, just to help us make a bit more sense of it and um, just get a couple of things sorted before we dive into today's message on Revelation. I'm going to hopefully preach a short message, but on quite a long-ish Bible reading. And so I want us to just kind of be prepared for what we're going to read before Gabe reads. Um, we're going to read, as Jess said, about some seals, which I've, they, they did not look like that, but that's just the closest I could get to illustrate seven seals. That's before you there. And I made them myself, I might add. Um, yeah, 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 I worked it out. Nearly set the house on fire, but it's, it's done. <laughs> Looks good. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, before Gabe jumps in, the Bible reading will be on the screen, um, but I'd love it if you have a Bible with you or a phone with you, or if you want to just grab, there's a few printouts of the reading on these two tables. Please move around and open your Bibles or, or grab a Bible. I'd love it if you have an open Bible with you while we, while we preach through it as well, because I'll get you to look sort of into, into the relevant spaces and, and chapters and and, and things as well. So, so yeah, just feel free to move about and take a minute and just... Revelation's in the back of the Bible, the very last book, um, if you're not familiar with it. And Gabe is going to read to us from chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 1. All yours, man. Go for it. Everyone, uh, as Etienne said, my name's Gabe, and Hopefully you don't get sick of me reading for so long. All right. <laughs> um, so Revelation 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures cry out in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pound, pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were, giving, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague. And, the, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were... And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed 
just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon, the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of <laughs> Isaacar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulun, uh, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000, the great multitude in white robes. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, and from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And, who, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. What a great job, Gabe. That didn't feel long at all. Yeah, which means you read really well, don't you? Um, each week that we do Revelation, we, we um, have worked with the analogy of Revelation as such is, a, is, an, is an epic story. Let's imagine it's a movie, although it's not a movie. Um, it's inspired truth to us. Um, and when you sometimes watch movies, the Mad King fans will do bonus features, watch the extras. And, and I thought at the start of each message, I'll do a little extra just to give broader insight into how this whole story works. And then we'll get into the passage that we read of the day. I want to do the same thing again today. So, um, five minutes, bonus feature. I want to talk about um, the, the outline and the structure of Revelation. Okay? That's the sort of very rough breakdown of how the whole story goes down over there. We've done the introduction, uh, we, the, that initial vision of Christ among the churches over there that we illustrated. We've done the letters to the seven churches. We've done the throne room. And now we get to a, 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 a big part of the middle of the book here that talks about um, three, particularly three rounds of seven things that are going to happen. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And we read about these today. They really include mostly sort of acts of judgment of God and other things. Um, and here's where you need to make a bit of a tough call in interpreting Revelation. Some people say the way to interpret Revelation is what they call linear. And they say from here on in in the story, in fact, the whole, the whole story... Um, Every event that is described, every act of God, is an event in human history. And each event in human history follows on the other one. And so this is a map of how human history is going to go down. One thing following another, like in a line, until eventually it is done. Time wraps up. Another approach better approach, I would suggest to you, is to say that we don't interpret Revelation in a line. We interpret the events described in Revelation as parallel events, which means that all the things described that God is going to do, for instance, in the seven seals, most of them are all happening at the same time. And they have been happening since the resurrection of Christ and they will continue to happen since the return of Christ. Right? There's not a line. It's a, it's a parallel. And in fact, you're going to find that in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, they're very similar. They've got 21 things that are described. And I put it to you, most of those things are all happening simultaneously, have been happening, will continue to happen, until the end. There are some things about the end that's described in these cycles of seven, 
and we'll unpack them today, but most of them are things that are happening all at the same time. Have been happening, will continue to happen until the end. The danger of going in a linear approach is that you've got to match history to these events. And so people will go that, you know, uh, the seven seals, the white horse was the time of the apostles, and then the black horse was the time of the Middle Ages that was dark, and the great plague was with death and Hades, and there was a great big blood moon in 1451, which was the sky turning. And so the problem is they continually need to be adjusted <laughs> because we don't know the future. <laughs> we don't know how long it's going to go for. And so it's, it's a, we need to be a little bit careful of any attempts to kind of interpret this in a straight line. Much better to go, nah, these things are happening, have been happening, will continue to happen till the end. Does that make sense? Roughly? Okay, cool. That's the bonus kind of feature. Now let's just dig into today's bits for the rest of the morning. Will this move? Um, Phil, my clicker won't move me on. If, if. Okay, here's, here's what I propose to you as a one-liner. What both chapters mean. If I can sum them up to you in one line, this is what they mean. The sovereign God is using suffering at the hand of Satan and sin for the sake of his sealed until he will stop the story. The sovereign God is using suffering at the hand of Satan and sin for the sake of his sealed until he is going to stop the story. Okay, I'm going to, let's unpack that a bit as we look through these chapters. Um, here are the seals, or picture of the seals as they're described to us. Seven seals. We'll whip through them real quick. First seal that Christ opens in this vision is a, is a white horse. Many commentators identify this with Christ. They say he wears a white robe and a crown, this must be Christ because of the purity. Uh, they may be right, I don't think they are. I don't think this is Christ. There is a rider on a white horse coming later in Revelation, another symbol. Who is Jesus? I don't think this one is Jesus. Because, oh, we don't have time for it, but... Uh, Old Testament, Old Testament, there are four horsemen in many places in the Old Testament and they're all evil and they're all there for judgments. It's unlikely that this has four horsemen, one of them's good, the other three are evil. Why would Christ be in the company of evil? It just doesn't make sense, it doesn't fit, right? Um, uh, most likely, um, this white horseman, if you want to pin that to a, a truth or a, or a phenomenon in history, is um, either Satan, who poses as a false Christ, hence the whiteness, or if you want to point it to original human actors, it's the um, 
The Parthians, the Parthians are modern-day Iran. They were the great enemy of the Romans. The Romans feared nobody except the Parthians. <laughs> now, they never quite extended out into that area because the Parthians actually thumped them back. And the Parthians had this great ability to ride horses and sh- ride forward and shoot backwards. And this rider is this kind of rider that can ride forward and shoot backwards. And um, it, it's, a, it's a conquering kind of a nation, bloodthirsty, warlike. But more generally, I think it just represents all kind of bloodthirsty, conquering empires over human history. You need to think Hitler. You need to think the Romans. You need to think Idi Amin. I don't know if you need to think Vladimir Putin or not. Maybe history will reveal that, maybe not. But all along, since the resurrection of Christ and the coming of Christ, this horseman is at work at the hand of Satan on the earth, right? Again and again and again and again. The second horseman, um, again, there's a conquering thing there going on. But, but the word slay comes up in the description of what this horseman was given power to do. He was given power to slay, particularly, followers of Christ. This is a very direct reference to persecution. To persecution of Christians. During the week, I've had um, a conversation with uh, a, a person who leads a lot of our international missions in India and... Um, Emails went out about this even in the last few weeks in India. A number of our brothers and sisters, 71 to be precise, have been killed. 300 injured, 1,700 houses burned, 25,000 are homeless, and 220 churches are destroyed. Most of it on the quiet are state-sponsored. This horseman is active. It's alive. It's not some historical thing. It's now. It's right now. Okay? Third Holtzman um, has this idea of, of, of famine um, and, and, and shortages that, that breaks out. It mentions, I forgot the verse, but you can look it up in your, in your Bible or you're your reading it. it. It talks about the price for wheat and barley. Um, that are 8 to 16 times the normal rates. Uh, what it talks about is really the, the suffering that are caused for, in particular, Christian minorities. They always do it the worst. When relief in war and conflict-stricken zones are handed out, who's last in the queue? Who in the corruption and the bloodthirsty vengeance for power and war in in corrupt nations are the ones losing out? It's the vulnerable, weak minorities and often the Christ followers. Maybe in our own society in a much milder sense, who does it the toughest? Single mum who believes in Jesus who's struggling to find a house who finds it hardest to pay for what others who are stronger might be able to pay for. You know, it, 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 it just is that kind of reality that 
um, this horseman too in, in, the, in the scarcity, in the famines that are going on and have been going on globally uh, are alive. He's, he's active. He works. Then there's the fourth horseman, death and Hades. Uh, the word death there is often used for plague and so it talks about um, illnesses. Death by sickness, illnesses. Again, a phenomenon we see across the world as a result of all the first three horsemen's work. Constantly alive, constantly active. Bring to mind the scenes on your TV, on the news, of war-torn places. That's what they're doing. It's what they have been doing. It's what they will continue to do in parallel until the end. But now comes the hard question. The very hard question. Because who's ultimately responsible for this? These horsemen are given power to do what they're doing. By who? Who's breaking the seals? <laughs> the lamb's breaking the seals. <laughs> the lamb's enacting this in, a, in, a, in an indirect sense. They are working at the bidding and under the sovereign control and hand of the sovereign God. The suffering they are causing are at the hand <laughs> of the sovereign God, and, 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 and now, now this gets very deep, right? Because you're saying, like I feel like saying, like the multitude under the throne who have paid for their blood, for their faith, are saying, how long? Why? When does this end? How, how does this work. Did you, did you catch that in the reading, how unique it is that we go from the suffering of these four horsemen and what they're doing, and then in seal number five, you've got these souls under the altar of the throne crying out to God saying, how long? How long must we suffer? How long will this carry on? Um, and, and with it, I, 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 well, I'm going to talk more about this because I want to hover here a bit. I think comes the cry of every suffering Christian. Suffering for whatever reason. And I find the response they get very interesting in Revelation 6 verse 11. Read that with me if you've got your Bible there. Each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Can you imagine that? Well, what, what a fascinating response. God, when will the world end? When will it be done? Oh, when the full number of you have been killed, then it will end. When the fullness of the suffering 
of God's people at the hand of the Lamb has been completed. <laughs> it's very confronting. Very confronting. Right? So let me press on with, 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 with our objections that we have. I've got three objections that I, that I want to echo after your thoughts, perhaps. Here's the first objection. You'd say, well, hang on a second, but I... This is more of a Western thing, and this is not the first thing that you're thinking, or the most pressing, but it's worth clarifying. You might say, but I don't suffer like that. Or many Christians I've heard over the years say, no, this suffering that you're talking about that must be completed is really persecution. People who are living in persecuted countries, they're dying. We're not talking here about the general suffering. We're not talking about suffering from cancer or from ill treatment by an abusive spouse or any of the sort of things that are more common to our suffering. We're talking here about unique suffering of people who are... Let me speak to that. Firstly, yes, we must admit that there is a uniqueness to this suffering that's being addressed here. One that we may know not much about. In fact, we don't know much about. We don't know what it's like and we need to acknowledge that. And this should serve us to perhaps strive to remember in prayer and solidarity, stand with our brothers and sisters who are paying for their faith with their lives and their blood and their kids' blood. It's an incredibly real, pressing, agonising thing for the vast majority of Christians in the world. So if I was to preach this in India this morning, it's a very different application, very different sermon, Right? Yet at the same time, I don't think the suffering just refers to physical persecution. And here's why. John Piper is very helpful in this, who says, you know what suffering does in the life of a follower of Christ? It brings you to the question of, will I give up on the goodness of God? Is God good? Does God love me? Is God worth following and holding on to and saying, yes, he is good, I love him, and he loves me, and none of this will take away from my faith and belief in the goodness and greatness of God. Whether your suffering is by someone who wants to take your life, whether it is your circumstances such as we know them, you're brought to the same question. But more than that, let me dig a bit deeper to the next objection. Why would God possibly work like this? <laughs> Why this? Why that answer to these suffering souls under the, the altar? Why not have been finished it at the time of the resurrection of Christ and the suffering? Why no, you must wait till the full number of you have been killed, till the full amount of suffering has been completed, right? That's the question. Why would a good God work like this? I don't know. I don't know. We, we don't exactly know in full 
human comprehensible answers, perhaps the answer that we want for that question. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. <laughs> um, Tim Keller died recently. Some of you know Tim Keller. He was one of the most, most influential and, yeah, it's, 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 it's rare for me personally sometimes to have a person, a famous Christian, die and feel kind of almost personally like it's a personal loss. It felt a bit like that for me. Uh, uh, if you know him and, and, and wonderful preacher, teacher, inspired many, I don't know him personally, I read his books and listened to some of his sermons and stuff. But he, 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 he said in an interview shortly before his death this, uh, he said, my wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life that we had before the cancer. He died from cancer. Suffered from cancer. Can I read that again to you? My wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. What an astonishing statement. Do you think what I think he touches on? He touches on something that the sovereign God does with suffering in the lives of his people. It either makes them or it breaks them. Suffering either makes you or it breaks you. And that's how it worked in the kingdom of God because it was suffering that made Christ the Christ who's elevated as the one who's worthy to open the seals. Remember the lamb? What was the lamb like? He was slain. That's what elevated him to glory. That's what God used somehow in the mystery of all that to bring the redemption, the restoration, the glorification. He did it through suffering. We don't know why he does it. We don't have the mind of God, but we do know what God does with suffering. We do know that he takes it and he turns your ashes into glory, your mourning into praise. It makes you as the child of God. As for every child of God before Christ and after God, after Christ and in Christ, this is what God does with suffering. And your next question might be, okay, well, if I can humbly bring myself to that point before this sovereign God who somehow uses suffering, I'm not sure that I'm strong enough to endure my suffering. This is very painful for people. This is too hard. I can't do it. I won't make it. It is too hard. You can. You can. <laughs> you can as a child of God. Why? Because I think so? No. Because of chapter 7 that Gabe read to us this morning. <laughs> you notice this is an odd chapter? We're breaking the seals, right? We're, we're going from 
white horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. God, this is so hard. Why is this happening, all this suffering? <laughs> and then we get the earthquake. I'll get back to the earthquake, but in here there's this whole chapter about the ceiling of 144,000 people that seems out of place. It doesn't really fit in that sequence of the horsemen. And what's it about anyway? Here's what it's about. It's a promise. It's a promise. It's a promise that God is saying to those whom he has chosen, whom he has made his own, that I will seal you with my Holy Spirit that you will endure the suffering that in the mystery of my sovereignty is ordained for you until that suffering has made you complete. You will endure it because you're sealed. You're sealed with my spirit. <laughs> sealed by the suffering of my son through whom I've deposited my spirit in you who will empower you day by day so that your hardships and your suffering will accomplish the thing that I have ordained for it to do. The 144,000 is the faithful of God. It's not some number just on that point. Some interpreted that as there are only 144,000 people who will be in heaven one day. It's rubbish. It doesn't work like that. It's symbolic. It says there's a number whom God knows will endure the suffering until they're made perfect. And that's you, child of God, certain, for sure, sealed, right? Sealed for glory, sealed by the Spirit, sealed so that you, with that multitude in the second half of chapter 7, can sing salvation belongs to our God. He is good. He does love us. Yes, I don't understand a lot of the mystery, but I love him. And all things must work for my salvation. And then we get to the last part of the phrase, and I'm moving to a close, a real close. <laughs> the suffering. Sovereign God is using suffering at the hand of Satan and sin for the sake of his sealed until he will stop the story. It will end. Do you notice seals 1 to 5 sort of deals with what's happening here now? And then the suffering souls cry out. The last two, 6 and 7, it's one of those small portions of Revelation that talks about the future. You know, all this warmongering and people being mistreated and famine and plagues and all that sort of first four seal stuff are human things that are happening, yes, now. But the last two are cosmic things that are fine. I mean, we can... We can perhaps just refresh our memories of that last two things that are going on. Let's real seal six again. I watched as he opened. This is 6 verse 12. He opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You see, no human act is going to do this. God is going to do this. This, this is going to be it. This is the end. 
Suffering is complete. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, in other words, the first four horsemen who held the power early on, they are now the ones who are hiding in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. It will end. And it will end with God in victory. <laughs> it's a promise. You're sealed and the suffering will stop. You may know that. <laughs> and on that day, you will not be hiding in the caves in fear. No, it's the day of your salvation. It's the day of the completion of all that you've been waiting for. It hints at it now and it'll get it in full at the end of Revelation. And the, and the seventh seal, just this wonderful, um, strange occurrence, 8 verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Can you imagine that? Out of all the noise and worship and multitudes upon multitudes, what the seal gets broken and what happens? Silence. Half an hour. <laughs> it's incredible. The meaning of it, usually, Old Testament, God's great and final act of judgment preceded by silence. The world waits. The souls under the altar holds their breath because God is finishing it. It's done. <laughs> Complete. <laughs> so let me, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, my dear friends, um, if you're suffering today, or let me say, no matter what you are suffering from today, May I invite you to consider that your suffering is supposed to do one of two things. It's supposed to draw you deeper and deeper into the goodness and love and grace of the sovereign God. It's either that for you or it is your judgment. Suffering you will not escape in this world. You will either experience it as God's judgment or as God's means of saving you, of drawing you, of restoring you. Can I invite you today that you would respond to your suffering obviously in the latter way. Obviously let it bring you to him. Let it make you into the person who will also hold your breath on that last day in wonderful expectation of the coming of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that there is so much about what we've read that we, in our brokenness, fail to understand. In our pride, we don't like. And yet, we humbly need to come before you 
you as the only source, the only place in which our suffering can find meaning and purpose and hope of a future restored. Would you bring us to that place this morning? May we bring our suffering, our hardship, our chronic suffering perhaps, day by day to you, to let you do with it what you've purposed. And yes, Father, I pray for relief and deliverance of suffering where it's within your will. Father, yes, we pray this morning for our brothers, our sisters, who are paying with their blood for their faith in you. We are praying that you would embolden them as sealed children by your spirit to not hold back, to not compromise, to not deny you. And Lord, we pray the same for us that we too will not deny you, that we too will not compromise, that we too will hold on to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are a suffering king, that you know our suffering. It's not strange to you. That you've suffered like us and worse than us. And that you're the one who we look to as the glorious first fruit of where suffering in the grace of God will take us to the throne, rejoicing with the multitudes declaring that salvation belongs to you. Amen.